Welcome to Swift Unwrapped, a weekly show about the Swift programming language and other Swift.org projects. My name is JP Smart. And I'm Jesse Squires. And today we're joined uh, by Ted Kermanick. Hey, Ted. Hi. Uh, I think most people probably know who you are, but just in case, do you want to introduce yourself a bit? Sure. Um, I manage the language and runtimes team at Apple, uh, which is all our work on Swift, but it actually includes all our work on Objective-C and most of our work on C++ as well. So this includes like the Objective-C runtimes, the C++ runtime, all our front-end work on Clang. So it's pretty much all our primary language work that we support in Xcode. Uh, does it include Xcode as well? It does not. Um, okay. Although some of the uh, some of the tooling experiences in Xcode are, are provided by things like SourceKit and so forth, which are, are included in that team. Um, and the other thing also is, so that's my Apple hat. Then I also wear an open source hat being involved with the Swift open source project as one of the core team members. Yeah, we saw Ted's hat earlier. It's really cool, actually. It has a <laughs> Swift pin on it. Oh, you were talking f- figuratively. Uh, I, well, his real hat's cool, too. Yeah, so the big thing uh, this week is Swift 4.2 mm-hmm. uh, being, uh, yes, officially re- released for the first time with Xcode 10. Um, what are some of the, uh, the most important things that people should look out for? Um, it's a, I mean, it's, it's a pretty broad question. I mean, there's a lot going, going on there. I mean, there's just the culmination of work from, from the community that they've proposed a whole bunch of great improvements to the language that just improves overall developer productivity. Um, and that's just all been driven by them. And so in some ways you're seeing the, the fruits of their labor come and become available for everybody else. There's also been a, a huge amount of work on just the core tooling experience in Swift, like faster build times, um, and we didn't we didn't talk about it a lot um, in in the various sessions, but just improvements to LDB, the editing experience, source kit is 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 a lot more robust, and I'd be happy to talk about more of those things as well. And then there's been a lot of work towards this binary compatibility goal that we've been talking about for a while, and the community has been talked about about ABI stability, um, but binary compatibility is that a, that that goal of being able to ship the runtime in the operating system so all applications could use it and also have that um, that commitment that if you built something with a compiler it can interoperate at the binary level at the runtime level with a future uh, like a future framework or whatever you know and then not have to be rebuilt mm-hmm. is binary compatibility distinct from ABI stability or are these there, I think one's probably actually a much broader term. At Apple, we use the word binary compatibility in a much more general sense. Like we care a lot about binary com- compatibility in, in the OS release, right? So every year when we release a new OS, we care that apps continue to work. And apps can stop working because we changed something in the OS that they relied on in some weird way. Mm-hmm. And so binary compatibility means things continue to work as you replace parts of the subsystem with newer pieces. And so that's a much more broader sense of what binary compatibility is. That's the user feature, whereas ABI stability is really about talking about a specific technology aspect related to binary compatibility. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about promising binary compatibility, it's, it's a much broader 
kind of statement. Mm -hmm. I think there's a blog post in the community about the efforts Apple goes to uh, to support this kind of binary compatibility. Um, yeah. LinkedIn iOS Dev Weekly uh, recently, but yeah, so that's I mean that's a combined effort from both like the compiler needs to continue to make sure the code continues to work, mm -hmm. um, that you know the individual like AppKit and Foundation, all those things continue that everything that uses them continues to run. So it's a it's it's a pretty strong contract mm -hmm. that basically you build your app against you know the SDK and it continues to work when you install a newer version of the OS, all your apps continue to work. That's that's binary compatibility. Yeah, that's certainly a massive effort. And it, how does that play together with other similar concepts of uh, compatibility, such as uh, module stability and library evolution? Okay. Well, I mean, maybe maybe a, a, another place to start. Also, I'll get into those. Is, is probably also like source stability and source compatibility, and yes. then like kind of build mm -hmm. those build those concepts up because I'll I think be able to explain module stability in terms of source stability. So source stability is 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 an even more basic concept. Is that you know the the code that you wrote can still be rebuilt, and that it behaves more or less the same way as it did before. And as we have evolved, Swift, there's been cases where we've changed. You know how this. You know what what can build and what cannot. But there's also been cases where we've changed something, like in the standard library where how it's actually working under the hood is different, but your code still can rebuild just fine and behaves observably in the same way. So that's, that's source stability. And that's the biggest gear and, you know, thing that we have right now going on in Swift. I mean, there was a lot more churn in the first few iterations of Swift, and now that's something that we, we try to maintain as something that, that people can rely on. Um, binary compatibility, uh, ABI stability is more about the behavior. So that's, if you think about it, source stability is about a, a, a compile time property. Mm -hmm. ABI stability is about a, a, a runtime property. So once your app has been built, you know, what happens when you try to launch it? Um, so it's like how it interacts with other libraries, how are objects represented, you know, in memory, how, you know, when, when you call another function, you know, what are the rules there? Like what gets put in registers? All that stuff has to do with that's the application binary interface. That's the ABI. And for something to be ABI compatible, it means that I can interact with some other you know binary, and and the the rules by which you know those things can interoperate are are, are stable. And that's obviously a, a requirement for binary compatibility. Mm -hmm. Module stability is a is really a is a third concept, and. Uh, it's modules are like the analogy of headers from from the C and Objective C world, where it's the interface of your of your of your APIs. And instant, you know, interesting enough, in the C and Objective C world, C module stability or that API interface stability basically boils down to source stability because it's it's headers, which right. is the source code. Right. Mm -hmm. The current you know format of Swift modules is they're not that. They are this binary glob of stuff that's you know outputted by the compiler when it compiles the actual uh, your source code, and so that it basically vends a digest of, of the interfaces that can then be consumed by the compiler. So that that format which the compiler ingests, like a human doesn't ingest, is not is currently not stable. In order to you know be able to vend libraries that you know expose an, an API, we, that also needs to be stable. But modules stability only also impacts just compile time. It's not a runtime thing. 
you don't need them. You don't use the module files when the app is actually running. It's it's just something you use when you build. I'm happy to dive into that more too if you're interested. Yeah. So the very strong connection between uh, the module format uh, or the the module files and header files. Uh, we can look at them as serving the same. Yeah, purpose. the exact same analogy. Yeah. And if you build a if you like build a Swift target in Xcode, that's a framework. It will then both Objective C. You'll be, then like for the Objective C exposed APIs, it will actually vend a header file, mm-hmm. and then for the Swift part, it will vend a, a module file. Um, and the interesting thing is the trajectory that will likely happen with getting a stable module format is we'll probably vend it as source code. Because the thing that we've been stabilizing, you know, focusing the most on stabilizing mm-hmm. is that is source code. So if we, I think another another way to look at it is, it's as if we were shipping pre-compiled headers. Is kind of what we have today with the right. Swift module files. Um, it's something we wouldn't normally do with with C. Um, the pre-compiled headers from Clang are basically just like a dump of like the compiler's like internal state. I mean, they're optimized for like fast compilation, but they're not they're not intended to be a stable format. I think with Swift modules, the the idea, at least you know, one that Jordan has proposed to mm-hmm. to me, is to instead of using the module format we have today, then something else that's more of like source code mm-hmm. that looks just like the declarations of the individual like APIs and so forth. And then the modules are generated from that, and so then it just boil you know then module stability just then basically boils down to source stability. Yeah, that's fascinating, especially considering. Um, how a lot of this groundwork is to enable future enhancements in some ways that we that are impossible to fully define today. Exactly. Um, so you know, this this work of stabilizing the ABI, the module format, uh, sourceability. In many ways, it's not just about stabilizing what's there today, but it's it's setting uh, a foundation for things to expand in specific ways in the future. Yeah, absolutely. So um, that also, you, you mentioned uh, library evolution earlier. So it's all, it's all interrelated with, uh, with module stability. If we, if we boil module stability down to um, source stability, naturally the language will continue to evolve and express more things and things like that. So that would be the natural way to be able to extend out those concepts in, in the module. The ABI is, is actually more interesting. I mean, we have to um, build in a, a fair amount of um, flexibility in order to to grow things out in in the future. Um, sometimes you can't think of everything, you know, up front, and you can go through heroics sometimes to introduce new things. Sometimes there's particular opportunities when you can make more disruptive changes in the ABI, but it, 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 they do become harder to stage in again because of that binary compatibility goal. You can't just go and change everything, and that's really one of the reasons why ABI stability is been a, a work in progress over some time. It's just there's major downsides to locking it down too soon because re, you know, revoking certain decisions, are it's very difficult or sometimes impossible. Um, or if you haven't done the diligence to build in enough you know, foresight into how you want to possibly extend the language going forward. And it looks like um, the Swift team has explored many different domains uh, in the work towards stabilizing the ABI, such as looking at the concurrency model, the calling convention, um, the uh, 
uh, ownership as well all factor in there. So in, in ways, it's like some of the preliminary design anyway, or at least the major directions kind of need to be figured out early on, or at least the different possibilities that um, directions that that those features could go in mm-hmm. so that there are the appropriate openings in the ABI. Would that that's right. I mean, there, and I think we benefit from having an immense amount of experience with Objective-C. Um, Objective-C has been very successful for Apple and the community for building these, these, these rich frameworks that have evolved over time. Swift is a more expressive language with the kinds of things that we'd like to, to do. And, but we have all that experience on the Apple you know, from vending side of vending you know, APIs and that insight, that those experiences really have helped, you know, motivate some of the things that we've wanted to build into Swift. So we're, we're really benefiting from you know decades of of, of people building languages and and build, you know building these you know rich ecosystems with libraries and so forth. So we're benefiting from a lot of prior experience. So one thing you mentioned, like library evolution. Um, Objective-C went through uh, different stages, if, if you remember the transition from the legacy to the modern runtime, right. how different things changed that, like, you know, um, you were able to add, like, uh, more instance variables, for example, to the class and things like that between the modern. So that was that was based on, like, okay, we're, we want to be able to have the capabilities to to change these classes on, under the hood as, uh, you know, as, as time goes forward. Because all those details were previously just exposed to the clients and baked in, and you couldn't change anything. In C, you still have that problem. Like you, you declare a struct, and all fields are exposed there, and the, it's 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 baked, and you can't change those things. And so we wanted in Swift to be able to have that kind of flexibility we learned from Objective C, but then push it through the entire breadth of the of the language. Mm-hmm. And so that's really what that 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 library evolution concept is about. Is that you can do things like reorder, you know, the enum values, or you know, add or remove methods, or things like that. You know, we wanted to give the flexibility so that a, a library author doesn't have to think of everything upfront of what the API will eventually be, and they have that flexibility to change things. But of course, that's that. There's immense technical work that has to go in to provide those affordances in the language. But the desire to have that came out of those experiences we had vending frameworks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one of those things that you just mentioned with uh, Enum, so it's like there's this implicit effort where you want to allow library authors to uh, reorder existing Enum cases uh, as needed. Um, but then there's also the like very explicit, um, I can't remember where the proposal landed, but like the frozen oh, yeah. or like right. open right. versus closed Enums that, right. that can be extended. And in that way, it's in terms of library evolution, it's uh, this more explicit thing that the author has to kind of opt in to or out of. Yeah, some so. of the complexities of that proposal came with the fact that we're interoperating with like the C world. So like C enums are reflected in, in Swift as, as enums and, and, and they don't have the same kind of flexibility that, that, that they came originally from Swift. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's it'll it'll be interesting because we basically want to be able to provide that kind of flexibility so that a library author could extend those cases and then much of the discussion I think you're talking about SC192 mm-hmm. um, came down to well what is how should an app be built against something where you're expecting some concept like an enum to 
evolve. And so I think a lot of the discussion came down to like, well, should, when should there be a warning? How do you want, how do we want to, you know, what should be the experience be on the client side when using these, these enum cases? And so we're kind of getting into territory that is somewhat new, mm-hmm. you know, um, that kind of flexibility with, with uh, these constructs is something that people haven't, you know, we're kind of figuring it out as, as we go in some sense, because some languages just haven't had that kind of, that kind of flexibility. Well, let's keep some of that for, uh, for when we talk to you about Swift five, okay. <laughs> but Swift 4.2 as it stands has, um, a great number of both, uh, community, uh, or just Swift evolution, uh, proposals that were implemented and includes, um, we've covered a lot of those on the show before, um, at various points of their discussion, implementation and review. Um, but there's more than, uh, than those that Swift 4.2 comes with, right? There's the, uh, uh, size optimization, compiler flags, mm-hmm. batch compilation, and the great mm-hmm. compilation speeds that mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. come with uh, those those massive efforts. Uh, so it's shaping up to be a really solid release. Yeah, we're, I'm I'm very happy about all those things. I mean, the the compile time was was something that uh, we we've cared very much about, and 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 some of the issues with Swift's compile time. Ha- it really kind of emerged out of seeing people use the language at larger scale. So Swift has this implicit visibility across files in the target. And that's actually quite a bit where a lot of this, you know, extra work the compiler needs to do um, comes from. And so the batch mode um, enhancement that, that Graydon and others did uh, really comes out of trying to reduce some redundant work there. So many people uh, observed that if they did like this whole module compilation with uh, no optimization uh, hack, right. uh, that they can get in some improved wins. And we're like, well, why? Why is that? Well, when you compile a um, a target in debug build, essentially the driver sets off like n front end jobs to compile each separate file. But for each one of those files, it has to go and like look at the other files for all the other stuff that it needs because it's you know it's referencing these 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 declarations and these other files Mm -hmm. and in some cases this essentially can lead up to quadratic work that's really and so with the whole module compilation you just compiling all those files once so you don't have that kind of quadratic work and so the observation was is there's um the redundant work is Essentially, what is the work I need to do to compile this individual file, and what's the work I need to do to basically analyze the rest of the of, of the target to just to get the information I need to compile this file? Um, and then previously, we were just forking off essentially n separate jobs and just redoing that cross target work over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. The batch mode basically takes the whole module compilation and then forks off k jobs, where k is the number of cores on your on your machine. And then for each one of those jobs, it's going to process n divided by k, you know, files, you know, and compile them all together. And so it's basically amortizing all that work of uh, compiling across an entire target to just each one of those separate jobs. So it's basically trying to reduce the work in that way. Now, that was actually a pretty uh, dense explanation. No, that, that was good. Yeah. That's why we need that iMac Pro. <laughs> Yeah, more cores, more threads, um, and and better use of them, uh, even when you're not using whole module optimization. Um, 
yeah, uh, I've I've definitely seen firsthand some of uh, the improvements to compilation time that that this uh, brings, and um, it's uh, much appreciated. One thing I'll add, I think it, it it really shows to us that there's probably a lot more performance under the hood. I mean, this this approach to dealing with it is is um, it's clever, but it also the problem can probably be broken down into more interesting ways where we can definitely get more performance out of the compiler. So, but we thought it was really critical because people were making serious investments in Swift. That's what that's that's very much what you know. I come in to work, you know, to make happen, and uh, we wanted to make you know their lives easier by reducing the compile times. And were you able to to leverage? some of the code that exists in the source compatibility suite to be able to benchmark um, these changes against? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, some of these wins really matter. Um, I mean, when you have a 2x compiled at time difference and you go from two seconds to one second, it doesn't really matter all that much. When you go from you know, 60 seconds to 20, you know, the, the, those bigger numbers actually really matter. So some of these Bigger projects are the ones that we would definitely look at as as inspiration of like you know where can the wins come from. Um, it also gave us a sense of like, how people are structuring their projects. But we also reached out to you know various you know folks who were using you know, Swift in, in in anger essentially right and like they had larger projects and we wanted to understand you know we we, we would set sit down with their engineers and talk about how they're structuring their projects and what they're seeing from the compiler. And then we, of course, are, are using Swift as well. We have some, you know, projects that are using quite a bit of Swift, and it's, it's not like we don't see the same kind of, you know, patterns. And so we use all these things to inform us, for sure. But the compatibility suite was is definitely something that we regularly use all the time to measure uh, compile time, um, code size, various, various performance aspects of the compiler. What were some of these uh, aspects of uh, the way that projects were set up um, and that code was structured that caused like some of these problems and what were like kind of the some of the solutions to that? Well, I mean, Batchbone's all about opportunities for parallelism. Sure. Um, and so, and, and also like the, the, the work that's been done on the new build system as well, it's about understanding like where are the choke points in the builds, like can we enable more, you know, parallelism across building multiple targets. Um, so for batch mode, for example, it's it's the focus there is on targets that contain lost with files. Mm -hmm. That that optimization doesn't apply if you've chunked up, you know, you you know, into like a dozen targets that have like a small number of SWIFT files. There, then you're just relying on the build system to schedule out the work so that you're building more concurrently. So it's it's kind of investments in both of those those areas. Uh, another big theme um, during this week at WWC was improving robustness, reliability mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. beyond performance as well. And, and one of the themes there was improving the reliability of source kit mm -hmm. and playground execution, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. um, since those are such interactive um, uh, features as part of the developer experience, how are those Tested. What are the benchmarks there? Um, because it's one thing, you know, to hear that. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, uh, syntax highlighting works now more of the time. Right, right, but, right. But you know, what does that mean? It, it's yeah. I'm and I'm fascinated too from from uh, from a um, engineering standpoint how you can reliably test these things and and make sure that your improvements are actually going to be felt. Well, we approach that problem in a, in, a, in a variety of ways, and and 
honestly, it was like one of my colleagues, he drove an effort to uh, just look at just tooling issues for Swift in general across all the various components and then try to use data essentially to like figure out what was the right things to prioritize. So for example, we have a fair amount of telemetry like crash reports saying like, here's the top crashers and so forth. And as we were seeding out betas with 9.3, is that? Uh, yeah, 9.3. Um, we, and that's where we like really started focusing this effort and converging it with uh, Xcode 10. Um, as we were seeding the betas and we would see new crashes pop up because like we have new compilers, like a lot of change, we would try to very quickly triage those, get to the get to the bottom of them and, and, and prioritize fixing them because these top crashes sometimes can mask other problems, right? If people are seeing certain crashes, they might not be seeing other failures that are there because you know they're hitting these other problems. So one of so one thing very basic is just try and get to your top issues as fast as possible. And so then the next thing you're looking at is something with a lot less frequency. Um, and also, obviously, the top things are the things to fix most because that's what people are hitting. Mm -hmm. But as we were doing this effort, we noticed that some of the crashes were things like, well, source could crashing on, like a, a source could, like, handles a request from the IDE, from Xcode, saying, like, give me, like, some information about, like, this line and column or whatever. And, or give, do, like, a code completion here or, or, or you know, some, some, some semantic request. And it was actually failing to service some of those requests, even on valid code. Like we, we, in, in for the compiler, we often worry about like all those edge cases that we have to handle because of you know invalid code, because the compiler basically has to recover and 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 try to figure out what to do. You know, and and when you're trying to build services on top of the compiler, you still want syntax coloring and all that other stuff to work, even though the, you know the file can't compile, so it's, it gets pretty tricky. Right. But like here was the case of, well, we were even like having some sorts kit crashes even on like valid code. And the observation was, well, that's, that's, that's inexcusable. <laughs> like we, 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 we need to fix that. So the way we did it is, is we built a stress tester so that um, we could just rebuild a project. And then for every Swift file that was built, we would iterate over all the lines and columns and, and issue a source kit request. And... It, it should not crash. <laughs> right. So, and you can just enumerate all over all the, you know, queries that the ID would possibly do in that case. And then that's just, and just becomes part of your CI that like now we just build those projects and we run the stress tester over it. And we're getting, and we're doing that right now with the source compatibility suite is actually, we're still flushing out problems that we hope to, you know, fix by when Xcode 10 um, ships. And our intent is to actually put that that tester up on the public CI, you know, once we've resolved most of those issues. And so then the, then continuously as people add more to the source compatibility suite, it will run through that stress tester. So that's, that is one way to be like ultra, try to be ultra rigorous. Now it's, we still have the problem of invalid code. And so there it's good techniques like maybe using like fuzzing or things like that. I mean, it's, it becomes harder because there's, there's lots of edge cases, but you attack these problems from different angles. It's great. I look forward to using it. Yeah, yeah. it's super interesting to hear that uh, perspective, to hear things articulated that way, because uh, I guess I never thought about the impact of invalid code and how the compiler has to deal with that and recover and not just completely blow up. So I think the uh, another big thing uh, is Swift 5 uh, mm -hmm. coming up, uh, which will be early next year now. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it was previously um, planned for later this year. Do mm-hmm. um, you want to talk a little bit about the the plan, how things changed, and what we should expect? Sure. I mean, it, it, ABI, the, this march towards binary stability where you're um, trying to figure out all the pieces of the ABI. And it's... It's a, it started out, it's, it was always known to be a very large project. And we started the, when we started working on the, on the ABI, essentially we, we took our big pile of bug reports, notes, and things like that, which we accrued our breadcrumbs of like, here's all the tasks that we need to do. And also as Swift has progressed, we've like, oh, well, you know, we want to make it more of a systems programming language. And so we want more of an ownership, you know, affordances for an ownership model or this, that, or the other. And you start building this bigger picture of things that you want to be able to potentially support one day but on the other hand you don't want to like push this goal of binary compatibility like too far down the road or else you'll never achieve it Mm -hmm. and so we took that as as a a project management task where we scoped it out and we we started going through these 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 big things but as in any one of these big things it's 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 hard to estimate exactly how long it's going to take and software est- estimation is hard yeah really? basically oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so as you know you 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 proceed you till you pull over pull up a rock and then like then there's another snake that you have to, to deal with and um, ultimately it's it's only probably taking a, bit, a little bit longer than than I expected I mean it's but it, it's not a whole lot longer than what we anticipated and also we've time boxed some of our things we're like well you know if we can't do this then we'll just We'll live with you know certain things, and that'll be fine. Mm-hmm. So we're we're not actually aiming for total perfection, but we wanted to make sure that we, we were looking at where we were, and I was like, well, it, it, if we had a little bit more time, we'll have something far better than if we had locked it down a little earlier. So that's really, I mean, it's 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 not really anything mind blowing. It's just the the product wouldn't have been what we wanted it to be, and we're trying to build something that's going to have longevity right we, we, we want people to be building on Swift with Swift in earnest and then, and making sure that the fundamentals are there is really critical for building you know building like a foundation that's out of concrete instead of sand right so yeah and definitely want to get this part right um, since it sets a foundation for, for right. future versions um, at uh, during the um, either the keynote or the State of the Union, it was uh, shared and for the first time part of the strategy a little bit of um, how Swift might be uh, embedded into um, Apple operating systems mm-hmm. in the future, mm-hmm. and not only that, but the uh, the way that uh, third party apps could benefit from uh, that from a performance standpoint memory use standpoint um, and also code size standpoint Mm -hmm. uh, using app store thinning and and things like that. Um, So do you mind elaborating a little bit more on uh, how that's all going to work out? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to talk about it. So there's actually a Swift runtime in the OS already, but it's used by the uh, consumers of Swift that ship with the OS. Again, because we don't have that that binary compatibility um, today. Mm -hmm. But a lot of those performance benefits that you know you just mentioned, we are observe, we observe them in practice for for those apps, right? So, the none of them have to include a copy of the runtime with them. Like they use a shared runtime, so check. You know you you know that they don't they don't, it can it can work. Um, they're not impacted by any startup time delays by having like all these like embedded dialibs inside the app, right? I mean, it's, it's part of the OS. They're already vetted. They're already understood. There's no launch time penalty. 
There's also various optimizations we can do on the Swift runtime, similar to what we've done with Objective-C, where we, we manage the, uh, like the selector table and things like that, and um, segregate writable from non-writable data so you, you have fewer dirty pages. Like All this stuff could have memory implications, and like shipping it, the runtime in the OS to be shared by apps means you, you can do all those, those things. Whereas right now, the runtime is really just, it's just another library that's part of the app, right? It's, it, mm -hmm. it has a little bit of uh, blessed status, I guess, from like the App Store distribution perspective related to some tricks we wanted to do with Fairplay so it could deploy back to an older iOS release. But other than that, it doesn't really have any, any advantages over anything else that, a, that an app developer would normally ship. So you get all those benefits, the, the runtime gets all those benefits by being in the OS. So then the, when the app uses that, it, it's just like using you know, any optimized library from the OS. So you mentioned the app thinning story. So this runtime will ship, basically come from a private runtime to be a, a public runtime. Mm -hmm. So everything in the system will use this, not just apps. It's like all the Swift usage on that OS, including the ones shipped from Apple, will also, use, you know, they'll all use the same runtime. Right. Um, and that that's that's a pretty big deal, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that that's a kind of like an ecosystem, you know, change. You know. But uh, let's get into the app thinning and what that actually means. When you're, the expectation is even though the Swift runtime will ship in the OS for an app to use, it's not realistic for us to expect that an app developer is going to be like, okay, I'm going to give up on deploying back to an earlier OS release. I mean, that would just be unacceptable, mm -hmm. um, right? They would, they, they would, they would not upgrade <laughs> just, right. just to Swift five. Right. They don't want to lose that flexibility. And it's also not the case that we're going to update all these o previous OS releases to have an embedded Swift runtime that works for them. So when apps deploy backwards to older OS releases, they'll still need to carry that runtime with them, mm -hmm. right? So that they could they can still work. So we all we want to do a pay for what you need, you know, kind of model. So if you deploy your app through the App Store, like which is the only thing you can do on iOS, but not on the Mac. So the Mac's kind of an interesting, an interesting case. The App Store will know, like, if you're downloading to a device that has the Swift runtime on it, they could just thin out those libraries and just, you know, just delete them. So it's not part of the application bundle when it gets installed on the device. Right. Um, on the, but if you're downloading to an earlier version of, of iOS where the runtime doesn't exist, you'll have to have the payload, you know, you'll have to have the, the runtime libraries there. Now, if you set your minimum deployment target for your app to be like when the Swift you know, runtime was available in the US, well, then it's just never there ever, right? Because you know, the build system can tell that you're just never going to need it. Um, and that's the same case you know, for, for, for the Mac as well as for iOS. So Mac apps will benefit from being distributed through the Mac App Store because <laughs> they'll be able to have that, that, that kind of benefit. Um. Yeah, I have so many questions actually about that. Um, yeah, it's, it, it all seems like a very viable strategy, um, but there's still a lot of details there. So, for example, say I have my app with Swift 4.2, it's on the store, mm -hmm. and you update to a version of iOS that has Swift runtime built in. Um, okay. You know, so <laughs> I suppose right, we, they're, they're, we, we want those apps to not to not break. Yeah, that's 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 an excellent segue. 
So this is something that we foresaw, you know, long t- before we even launched Swift One. The, the the fact that we didn't have a a, a a stable runtime. Essentially, the app is its is its own kingdom, like with its with its own runtime in it. And then eventually, it will be in a in, in an OS where there is a Swift runtime. And so I was thinking about a good way to explain it. Like one visual I have is if you imagine like the app is kind of like a goldfish bowl with like its own water and maybe like you dye it a certain color or whatever, like it's green. And then imagine like floating that goldfish bowl on top of like a, like your pool, (laughs) which is a much bigger pool of water and it's colored something different. That's kind of like the relationship between the OS OS's usage of Swift and the app's usage of Swift today in that they're completely fenced off. Because there's the OS uses Swift. It's just not in ways where its uses permeate into the app's you know, process. Right. Once the Swift runtime's in the OS, it's possible that any of the frameworks that the that app was using now might be using Swift from the OS itself, either directly or from a framework that it indirectly uses, because it's it's not infrequent that an existing framework changes how it's implemented. You know, as as you march forward in time. Mm-hmm. So when if you take that visual I was mentioning, it's basically like you take that goldfish bowl and you just basically plummet it down into that pool of water, and the water starts mixing together. That's basically the case of you can have objects from two Swift runtimes in the same process at the same time. And because Swift objects can be, are like, you know, Objective-C objects, they could flow across Objective-C API points that this, the Swift 1 through 4 2 app was using. Right. So you'll have a case where your, your application code, which is maybe a Swift 3 or whatever, starts interacting with Swift 5 objects. So this is something that we first saw was something we needed to do. And th- this is something that has to be encoded in the ABI. So the ABI for those objects will actually have marker bits that indicate whether it's a, an app's version of the runtime, whether it's an Objective-C object, or it's a system Swift. Yeah. And then the idea is that the older Swift uh, version apps will just treat those Swift from the OS objects as if they're just Objective-C objects. It, it will ignore the fact that they're Swift and vice versa, right? It, basically, you have to wall them off from each other. Mm-hmm. But you have to design that into the ABI, you know, as part because it's part of the Objective-C <laughs> interoperability. Uh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really, really cool. And I'm, I'm glad uh, you've, you've put in this level of, uh, of forethought yeah, that was that was that was John McCall and Greg Parker who came up with that, and they they thought of that like at the very beginning. Those and I was pretty impressed. Those are some smart people. Yeah, not dummies. So why uh, why use Objective C objects? Well, I mean, it, it's 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 part of that binary compatibility theme, right? The, right. the Swift one through four dot two apps, how are they talking to the system? Mm-hmm. They're talking to the system either through Swift APIs that are in the overlay. Mm-hmm. The overlays are embedded in their app, right? mm-hmm. so it's essentially part of the app. Right. And then the things that they're talking to in the actual system itself are either C or Objective C APIs. Right. So that's the connection point between the app and and the OS. It's not like they were rebuilt to talk to Swift five APIs. Right. right? We're talking about existing apps that that are on the store today, right. you upgrade your OS, 
what are they going to be talking to? They're going to be talking to the C and Objective-C APIs. Right. But those implementation of those Objective-C APIs may change, so the actual objects that flow across them might actually mm -hmm. be Swift objects. I see. So it's, it's a very temporal kind of thing where as things change, the behavior may change. And that's really what the whole binary compatibility theme is about, is, is this over time you can swap out implementations, but they continue to work. Right. So uh, is it fair to say this is like kind of hacking a new use case for this Swift Objective-C bridge to solve this problem? Um, I'm not certain if it's uh, it, hacking a new use case. It's, it's more of a, you are acknowledging that these two runtimes may be completely incompatible, and so you want to mm -hmm. pretend to each other that they don't exist. Right. Right. Um, and that they're they're just they're just they're just Objective C objects at that point. Right. Yeah. What I'm finding interesting, um, I'm sure I'm missing something, is that the Objective C runtime um, and the way it's exposed is. Uh, it, it can't represent everything that's in Swift 4.2, for example, right? right? Um, and so how, how would it be possible? I suppose since you're kind of going the other way around using this representation, it's actually from kind of the system, the OS mm. presenting itself as, as Objective-C and everything that's um, currently kind of in the Swift overlays, which is what the application Swift uh, goldfish bowl mm -hmm. uh, is is talking to, then everything there is representable via Objective-C. So it works in that direction, but it wouldn't necessarily going from Swift 4.2, including like all sorts of conditional conformance uh, Swift generic stuff going like through an Objective-C filter translation stage. Um, maybe I'm I'm missing. Um, yeah, part I, mean, of the I, analogy. I think maybe the the uh, the the place to really envision what's going on is at the runtime level, right? And so you almost have to completely erode all of those. You know, the like, the Swift one through four dot two. It, it could be a, conceptually a completely different language from the purpose of of this conversation. It, it, it's really just about the objects as they're being passed around in memory. It's that. The Swift run five runtime. It, I mean, we, there's a couple of ways we could do it. It's like, oh, well, we could make the Swift five runtime work with any previous version of Swift. Well, we've changed so many things there, you know, over over time that mm -hmm. that would be just really really hard to do. And of course, the earlier versions of Swift had we didn't know what we would change, you know, later on. So they're not designed to interoperate. So it's basically you're boiling it down to like the lowest common currency that they can can think about. Right. And it's fine because we're just these the only way that these apps are talking possibly going to be talking to this to this other swift runtime is through these objective c apis they're just expecting them to be objective c objects so it's it's totally fine like from a functionality perspective that's all they expect so it it it, it works fine yeah so objective c is like the common glue between all exactly. the different swift yeah, versions exactly yeah and everyone said objective c was dead yeah, no, it's it's just living dead. in Ted's backyard pool and all this water, apparently. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that analogy helped at all. It, I, was I, trying. I think it really did. Yeah. Where's the Objective-C in that analogy? Is it the pool? Is it... Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's just my analogy is just the water is just <laughs> objects in memory. You guys can extrapolate whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a big part of the runtime coexistence. There's other random stuff that um, some of the overlays expose, like Objective-C... Uh, 
classes and so we'll have to rename them so that they can't conflict in memory at the same I mean there's there's all like this laundry list of like you don't want these two things to conflict in some way yeah. and so it's a bunch of like little technical like paper cuts you know we have to we have to handle there but that's kind of like that's what turning the it's like landing swift in the os and and turning on abi stability it's like kind of like turning the key on a car it's like you're activating all of that and it all just has to kind of work um i have a question again about swift 4.2 um do you have something yeah uh before we move on to that uh so if objective c were not part of this picture this would be much more difficult, it seems. If Objective-C was not part of this picture, um, I'm not certain yeah. if it would be more difficult. I mean, if, if Objective-C wasn't part of this picture, what you're still, you still have some APIs that you're... So the binary compatibility concern comes down to just the interop, right? I mean, you can have um, conceptually, like, you know, people build apps out of you know, various languages that have different runtimes in them and so forth. It's when those things start interacting with each other is is where the problems you know come from, and I mean that, that's why we have like different forms of isolation in computer science, right? Is 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 <laughs> you? It's where th interactions happen is is the, is is the areas of concern. So um, if the OS was just vending C APIs, I mean, I guess it would be a lot simpler in some ways. I mean, because those concepts might be more opaque or or whatever. But I mean, this, 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 this is essentially the design space we have to work with. So talking about um, how objects are passed around, uh, Swift 4.2 introduces a new calling convention mm -hmm. um, with regards to ARC, where now instead of um, passing objects as, as Kali owned, is mm -hmm. that right? Mm -hmm. It's now being passed in a guaranteed um, fashion. So, um, if you can briefly explain what that is, um, don't go into too much detail because there are, there are great resources for that with sure. the WDC videos. Right. But more importantly, something that I haven't seen covered is why change that now? Was it challenging to do it in the guaranteed calling convention originally? Or is this something that came about as an observation of, okay, well now it's now we realize that we're better off going the other way around. I think it's the latter. Um, I mean, it, we started working. I mean, the, the irony is the calling convention is actually much closer to Objective C now. So, I mean, originally we we made it the way it is now, where the idea is that the the, the callee is the one who can who can release the the object, as opposed to it's just the caller who handles it. With the idea of like, hey, you know, you can possibly shorten the object's lifetime, right? Because you're you're bringing the actual time the release happens to, you know. Shrink it, you're shrinking the window of when that is. And so the, the whole insight there was like, it will, maybe it will reduce memory pressure or, or, or whatever. The problem is it's, 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 it's the convention. So, um, I mean, the, 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 the problem I illustrated in, in the slides is like if you call a bunch of functions that you're passing this object off to, you have to do these extra retains and, and releases. And it's just redundant because you know you're going to be keeping that object around for, for a while. And so it was, it really just kind of bore out of like a pragmatic observation of, well, you know, this probably is a better, it's just, it's a performance trade off, right? When one will have a shorter memory lifetime for the objects, the other one has fewer retains and, and releases. And that really just comes out of experience. And so we had an idea of like, well, this will, we think this will work better. And, and then we started working on thinking about the, the, 
the longer term goals with like an ownership model of having borrowed versus owned and whatever. And then we started talking about the trade-offs and like, well, what should be the default be? And so there'll be some cases where people will want, you know, the other way around and, and we'll probably provide affordances for people to be able to specify that. But it really comes down to what deciding what the default should be because you wouldn't want, if you got the default wrong and, and people wanted to, you know, it be the other way, then they have to start splatting all these keywords everywhere. So it, it just came out of a talking about the future, going like, okay, well, we've got the default wrong. Let's go. And then we did some measurements and investigation and then decided to, to make the change. So Kali owned is the convention that had the extra retains and releases. That's right. Okay. That's right. And Up until 4.2, right. Right. it's now guaranteed. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, I think that's all we have for this episode. Uh, you can find the show on Twitter at Swift underscore Unwrapped. And you can find me at Jesse underscore Squires. I'm on Twitter at SimJP. And Ted, where can people get in touch with you? Um, there's there's definitely my uh, the, the Twitter account, tcrabbinac. Um, and uh, obviously there's the Swift forums where I'm, I'm happy to get the direct message there as well. So any, any of those means would be, I'd be totally happy for people to reach out. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thanks for listening.